Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. I hope you had a great week. As always, Let's Talk Micro is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pandora. Whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. So please go ahead and follow. You know, leave any feedback, topic suggestions. I always like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. Any feedback that you have is greatly appreciated and, of course, is always welcome. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was an interview with Dr. Dan Rhodes from the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and he came on to the podcast to talk about bactericide, which is a deep thinking model that was used in some sort of um, AI that was used to analyze some images of urine cultures and compare them, you know, those images that were shown to technologists, and the agreement was really good. So he came in, you know, we talked about the potential of this. How could this be applied to the laboratory? You know, as we keep going on a way of more automation. So go ahead and check it out. That's episode 44. Today's episode is another interview episode. A great interview with Dr. Andrea Prinzi. Um, she's very active in the microbiology field. We know a lot of publications. You know, very nice, very great, you know, some great energy, you know, very helpful, great disposition. So it was an amazing interview. And in this episode, she comes in to talk about an article that she published titled Updating Breakpoints in Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing. And this was published on the website of the American Society for Microbiology. And those of us that work in clinical microbiology or microbiology, we are familiar with you know, with breakpoints, with terms such as MIC, minimum inhibitory concentration, zone of inhibition, right, ETAS. So we are used to, you know, we work with susceptibilities and we have guidelines, right? We have the CLSI that it, it publishes every year, you know, with updates depending on how the breakpoints have changed. And many questions arise. One of them, a very important one is, are the breakpoints that we use are they current? If they are not, what can we do to update them to make them current? There's a lot of information out there. You might not have the staffing. Um, you might not have a microbiologist, like a, a PhD at your facility. So you might feel a little lost about what to do. What are the, what's the significance of, of using outdated breakpoints? So this is a very helpful article where Dr. Prinzi, you know, she lists, you know, what's the significance of using outdated breakpoints. You know, she talks about breakpoints and she provides some resources that you can use, you know, and the steps that you need to do to verify that your breakpoints are current and where to go and follow a series of steps. So this is some very valuable information. And I'm always a fan of, of people that actually, you know, they use their knowledge, their education to go ahead and help this profession, to put information out there so we can all learn and be better at our jobs. 
and of course do our job properly. So great interview. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So on today's episode, we have a guest to discuss an article titled Updating Breakpoints in Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing. This was published in the American Society for Microbiology website on February of this year. So here in Let's Talk Micro, we have Dr. Andrea Prinzi to discuss this article. Dr. Prinzi, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here, Luis. You're welcome. So um, can you start with, a, let's start with an introduction, you know, a little bit about your background and what you do. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I will try not to make this too terribly long, but I have a bit of a varied background. So I actually started as a laboratory assistant many years ago at Children's Hospital Colorado. And as I was working as a lab assistant in the micro lab, my manager at the time was like, hey, I think this is maybe a career you'd be interested in. Of course, I was a, a bachelor, you know, I was an undergrad in biology, so I thought I was going to med school. <laughs> That's what we always think we're going to do is bachelors of biology. Um, and I didn't know much about the med tech profession. So I actually spent a year and a half shadowing the medical laboratory scientists in microbiology, learning from them, um, and then working in the lab as a lab assistant. And it was actually self-taught in clinical micro. I, I just basically memorized the whole uh, Koneman's textbook of diagnostic microbiology and then sat for my exam after a year and a half of doing that, became a clinical microbiologist uh, certified through ASCP and then worked there for about 12 and a half years, um, moved up over the years in, into various positions and then was a senior microbiologist there. Uh, by the time that I left, I got my specialty certification in micro in about, I think it was about 2013 or 2014 also did my uh, master's degree in public health and epidemiology in 2014 while I was still working in micro just because I wanted to, to tie together the role of public health and the work that we were doing. And I was really interested in infection prevention. So I received that training at Colorado School of Public Health and then continued to work in the lab for many years and eventually decided to pursue a PhD in clinical and translational science at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Uh, the reasoning behind that was I was starting to get really interested in um, antimicrobial stewardship work, clinical research as it related to the use of diagnostics, and I didn't really have the platform uh, that I wanted to explore those questions, so I decided to do the PhD. It was a really great program and just finished that up uh, this last January here, January of 2022, so newly minted PhD, um, and then I am currently a medical science liaison uh, for infectious diseases, microbiology at BioMario. Well, uh, first of all, you know, congratulations on completing your PhD. Thank you. <laughs> and um, yes, and I also, I wanted to mention just for the, the audience, and, and I said this before in previous episodes, and we, you know, I like to reiterate it, that, you know, we do mention some, you know, sometimes, you know, we mention places where we're employed, um, but they have no affiliation you know, like, for example, like my employers, they have no affiliation to this podcast. Um, so just like you, right? So it's just, we, we like to put that disclaimer out there that we talked about microbiology and then, you know, we talked about publications and stuff, but it's not, it's not necessarily the opinion of the employer. So it's always good to put that out there and make it clear. Yes, perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. So um, what, was the, what was the purpose of this article? This is an article that I wrote with the Bugs and Drugs group uh, through the American Society for Microbiology. This group 
uh, regularly puts out informative articles relevant to the practice of clinical microbiology or, or public health, and they're free and they're open access um, on the internet to anyone that you know, finds them interesting. Um, and what I like to do when I'm thinking about what I'm going to write about next is ponder things that I am really grappling with as a microbiologist in the field or, or in the work that I'm doing, and then also things that I, I think are heavy on my mind as a a person that's living in the world as a, as both a patient in the medical system and then someone that also works within science and healthcare. And so this particular issue is something I've been thinking about for a while, but it's been really coming to a head um, in the last few months. And so I thought that this would be a really great way to just provide an overarching summary. It's a really complex topic and there's many experts in this that have been publishing on this and doing work around this for quite a while. People that are uh, far more well-versed and intelligent on this topic than I am for sure. Um, and so they, they are really great references, but it's just that there's a lot of information out there and it can be kind of hard to pull it all together. So I just thought this would be a neat way to provide a scoping overview and then kind of coalesce and combine everything into one uh, location for people to reference as they're moving through this breakpoint process. Yes, you know, you did say, you know, it's definitely, um, there's a lot of information out there. And so, yeah, personally, I think, you know, this was a very great article and I will talk more about this later, but yeah, you know, it's always really good to bring everything to one place just to make it easier. So, yeah, so for you students out there in the audience, if you're, you know, microbiology students or med techs, you know, might not be too familiar with the breakpoints. And this is actually, you know, a very, a very dense uh, subject that you end up learning a lot more when you start, you know, your job that you're more involved in this. Um, but for the audience, you know, let's, can you talk about, you know, breakpoints and their categories? Yes, I will do my best. So this, as you said, this is really complicated. This gets really complex and deep. Um, so I will try to keep it as brief and succinct as possible, but very simply, I think we all know that one of the core functions of the clinical microbiology lab is to provide susceptibility information so that our clinicians can effectively manage our patients, right, and give them the best care possible. So when we're testing organisms and performing antimicrobial susceptibility testing, what we're hoping to get out of that is some information that can be used for not only dosing of antibiotics, but just um, all sorts of other measures like infection prevention, things like that. And what we're trying to get is called a minimum inhibitory concentration. So that's the lowest concentration of a drug that's going to prevent pretty much visible growth of an organism. But that is just a number to us. That doesn't mean anything unless we have interpretive criteria. So we really have to use criteria that are uh, very based in data and evidence from practice and all sorts of other studies um, that help us understand what these numbers mean for every combination of organism and antibiotic. So breakpoints are these interpretive categories that are going to correlate with the probability of certain clinical outcomes. So they're usually based on antibiotic levels that you can get or that you can achieve in the serum. Um, that's not always true because urine is a different story, but um, that's a whole nother topic for another day. Um, but these breakpoints are based on data that are collected uh, from all over the place. So really there's pharmacokinetic studies or data, which is pharmacokinetic, I believe is what the body is doing to a drug. And then there's pharmacodynamic data, which is what the drug does to a body. Um, all the, these data points are coming in. You've got data from experts in the field who are using drugs and treating patients. So all this is taken into account to create these breakpoint categories. 
And these categories uh, can be broken down into um, susceptible, which generally means that there's a high probability of a favorable clinical outcome if you use that um, drug against that organism. Then there's a resistant category, which is that there's a low probability of a favorable clinical outcome. And then intermediate is a little bit hard to explain, but it's kind of this middle area that's accounting for this inexactness that occurs when we do susceptibility testing. We're always kind of plus or minus one dilution from the MIC we have. There's kind of this gray area. So intermediate kind of accounts for that. And then there's other categories um, like susceptible dose dependent, which again can be kind of hard to explain, but sort of mean, basically means um, if there's a possibility of using more drug to treat the organism, then, then there could be susceptibility there. So these are just categories that are used to help translate to clinical practice. So we've got this number that we've gotten from the micro lab. Now, how do we translate that to clinical practice and how can it be used to treat a patient? So as far as breakpoints, you know, a, a good topic, you know, that I had in a previous uh, interview was, you know, that we were talking about stenotrophomonas maltophilia, you know, and the challenges with the breakpoints. So some, um, some antibiotics, they don't have some susceptibilities, they don't have FDA breakpoints. Um, can you talk a little bit about them? You know, the FDA breakpoints versus the CLSI? <laughs> yes. Oh, so this is extra crazy. Okay. So there's, um, I'm really just going to focus on the United States. You know, we're very heavily regulated here. There's a lot of things to consider um, when thinking about how this process happens. But first and foremost, we've got the Food and Drug Administration. So the FDA, right? And they've got a branch within their organization called the Center for Drug Evaluation Research or CEDAR. And so that organization is really responsible for setting breakpoints for these drugs when they come to market. But we know that just using the same breakpoint that's initially set, that's probably not gonna work, right? Because bugs change. We probably need to revisit these breakpoints over time. We've, we get increasing resistance, things are getting really complicated. So we can't keep the same breakpoints forever. They probably need to be reevaluated. So Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute is an organization that evaluates all these data coming in every year they look at these breakpoints, and if they think that something needs to be um, updated or changed, they can submit a rationale document to the FDA, and they can say, hey, you have these breakpoints listed. These data support that we think these should be moved. Usually it's a lowering, you know, to kind of accommodate these more resistant organisms, make sure we're capturing those. Um, submit it to the FDA, and if the FDA agrees with that rationale, then the FDA will post those they'll recognize those CLSI breakpoints on their website. So FDA's got this website called the uh, STIC website. It's I think it's Susceptibility Test Interpretive Criteria site. Um, that's where they basically post what the most recent breakpoints are. And so if you ever, if ever anyone ever wants to know what the breakpoints are per FDA, they can go to this. They can Google FDA STIC STIC. And this website will show you what's been recognized by the FDA or which breakpoints are still the updated FDA breakpoints, et cetera. What complicates this is that manufacturers in the United States have to use FDA breakpoints. So they cannot adopt CLSI breakpoints until those breakpoints are recognized by the FDA. So everything on an automated system or, or otherwise is really going to be an FDA breakpoint. Um, and the challenge has been historically, um, and we can talk about this a bit too with these new uh, cap 
the new cap requirement once we get to that. But um, there's this whole challenge amongst um, these different organizations and manufacturers and laboratories, and we'll touch on that, I think, in a bit. But um, I think it's just important to note that CLSI is continuously reviewing these, uh, proposing changes. FDA may or may not recognize CLSI breakpoints. The FDA website will list either FDA breakpoints if they don't decide um, to recognize CLSI breakpoints or CLSI breakpoints, or sometimes, like you said, uh, there's a drug where there just isn't anything on the FDA website. And so the CLSI or potentially something like UCAST breakpoints would have to be used in the lab. And there's a whole process for that uh, that would be a little more labor intensive just because there isn't anything posted in you know, terms of a breakpoint. So it's very complicated, lots of moving parts. Um, and I can touch on that a bit more, I think, once we work through what it means for labs. But I think that covers that question. Okay, so yeah, so that was the challenge for the, the that was one of the questions, yeah, with the challenges for the, for manufacturers. So yeah, so what are the challenges for laboratories? So I think if you break this down, there's, there's a couple things that happen. So from the manufacturer side, I would just also note that um, there are always competing priorities. You know, there's a lot going on within a manufacturer's company. So there may be other, you know, <laughs> things going on, new technologies or new research and development things. And so there's always these competing priorities and, and where the updating of breakpoints falls is, you know, can really depend on what the priorities of a company are. Um, I think it's not always clear when uh, breakpoints are updated on this website. It's not like there's a big alarm that goes off in every company's, you know, inbox that says, hey, a new breakpoint's been recognized. It's time for you to submit your data and get everything cleared. So I don't know that manufacturers are always um, acutely aware of when these updates happen. They are involved in, in um, organization, you know, in, in the CLSI updates and things. So it, it happens, but I'm not sure how in real time it can be for these organizations. It's also really expensive um, and it's just time consuming. So once an organ, once a uh, manufacturer decides to perform uh, and submit validation performance data for these new breakpoints, it also just takes a really long time to get clearance through the FDA. So all of that is a bit messy. And then in the meantime, laboratories have to decide what they're gonna do. So while they're waiting for breakpoints to get cleared by their manufacturer, uh, they kind of have a couple choices here. They can decide to update to the most recent CLSI breakpoints, which clinically is a really valuable and important thing to consider doing, but there are a lot of um, other things to consider like time and experience and just basically resources that the laboratory has. If they choose to validate a CLSI breakpoint that has not yet been um, updated on their system or, you know, recognized by the FDA there, that's considered an off-label validation. And so the laboratory really then has to perform a pretty extensive in-house validation to demonstrate uh, that the instrument performs as it should um, and is of enough quality for clinical care, basically, uh, in their institution. And that can be really labor intensive. It can be really confusing uh, figuring out how many isolates you should use, what protocol should you write, what should this look like, especially if you've never done a big one like that before. And then I think a lot of laboratories aren't sure who they can ask for help. So um, how do they find out what their manufacturer is doing? How do they know what the FDA is doing? <laughs> How do they know 
it's, it's a lot of communication between a lot of parties and it can be just really challenging. So I think right now, uh, one of the biggest issues is going to be there's like staffing issues in laboratories, there's burnout, people are just really struggling. And so adding a, a big validation for a bunch of drugs um, is a really big ask of laboratories, but um, I can touch on this more in a bit too, but it is an important thing to do. So it's, it's kind of a hard, hard situation. Um, yeah, especially, you know, after, after, you know, with the pandemic and everything, yeah, it was very, very challenging, you know, anything from supply, staffing, all this information that you need if your breakpoints are out and you don't know where to go. And I mean, not everyone, and this is not because I, I was reading another article where they would list it, you know, like they did a survey and like an X amount of hospitals, you know, that were not using current breakpoints. I mean, it's, it, this is not exclusive to like, you know, like small facilities versus large facilities. Um, but a lot of times, you know, I have been in, in, in places where you don't have access to, let's say like a, like a microbiologist on site or, or someone that is keeping current with that stuff. So all the labs function differently. And, and then, you know, sometimes, you know, especially like I said, with the understaffing, everyone's trying to move fast, fast. So you might not know who to ask. Um, so it's, it's definitely great to, you know, find these steps, which is going to be my next question. Um, can you summarize the steps, you know, to take to find out if the breakpoints need to be updated and what to do if, if an actual update is needed? So I would add to your last comment there too, just you bring up a really great point. I think it's also very important to remember that, you know, I come from a, I trained and worked for a long time at a big academic institution. We had lots of resources. We had a ton of involvement from our infectious disease physicians. We had pharmacists in our lab every day. They were wonderful. They were supportive. And it was just, it was still hard, but it was a lot easier to go through this process with that level of support. Um, I think it's important to remember that that is not the case across the United States. You have a lot of uh, variation in what a laboratory looks like in terms of size and resources and personnel. And like you said, sometimes, um, maybe it's a generalist that works a bunch of different areas, you know, maybe an infectious disease physician really never comes down to the lab and there's not a lot of involvement with the PharmDs. So it's really important to consider the impact um, of these processes on smaller labs, you know, and, and some of the extra assistance they may need and education they may need um, help with just because that's a, a huge challenge. So I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really important point. Um, steps to take. So this is also, I think... <laughs> everyone's going to find that when you talk about the breakpoints issue, a lot of the time you're going to get these, um, what feel like vague answers. Um, if you talk to people that work with manufacturing companies, you may hear them say, well, I can't tell you what to do um, because legally they cannot tell you what to do. It's up to every laboratory to decide what is most appropriate for their laboratory. Um, when you read some of the recommendations through, through guidance documents, it may seem a little bit like there's guidance there, but um, is that always the case? Or it just seems very confusing um, and, and can be kind of up in the air. So some general steps will be the things I list here, but I would also say with the caveat that this could change from lab to lab and will definitely depend on the size of the lab and um, the, the things on formulary, what's being used at the hospital, et cetera. But the first step would be to just figure out where breakpoints are coming from. So 
you know, um, if you're using an automated susceptibility test system, are breakpoints um, coming from that instrument? Are they being pushed from that? Are breakpoints coming from the um, laboratory information or electronic health record system, whatever's being used there? Are they coming from that? Um, this also applies to, to anyone using like diffusion and things like that. So you have to kind of understand first where your breakpoints are coming from and then going through and figuring out which breakpoints you're using. And that sounds straightforward, but that can also be very challenging. Sometimes going to your automated instruments and figuring out what's actually being used in the system can be a little bit tricky. So I think always reaching out to a manufacturer and asking for help um, from anyone on that side and seeing if they can help you figure out which breakpoints you're using on your system, writing those all down, documenting everything. Um, and then comparing those breakpoints that you're using to the CLSI M100, the most recent version, and seeing if they match. And if they don't match, then also um, comparing to that FDA stick website to see, are you using updated FDA breakpoints? Are you using updated CLSI breakpoints? Or are you using something that's really old that's not updated on either of those? Um, and then determining what you're gonna do. So once you've gone through, you figured out which breakpoints you're using, you figured out which ones are obsolete, then making a priority list for which to update first. There's some really great, um, really great publications out there by um, Dr. Romney Humphreys, um, Dr. Patricia Simner, um, Jean Patel, there's Dr. Jean Patel, there's lots of wonderful uh, pieces out there that help walk you through um, the, the process for doing this. And actually, if you weren't able to catch the CLSI webinar that happened, I think in January, um, I would really recommend maybe checking that out. They provided a couple flow diagrams or um, slides that help you think through how to approach this process, which is really, really helpful. But um, making a priority list is important because this is a huge task. And so you might not be able to tackle all of them, you know, first or right away. And there's certainly some updates that are more clinically uh, important than others. And so if you have to, to start somewhere, starting with the ones that are going to make the greatest impact on patient care, it's probably a great place to start. And make sure you document everything. <laughs> yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, document. So um, what are the, you know, what are the potential consequences of using outdated breakpoints? Mm, that's, that's very important. So I think we're all acutely aware that we are in a antimicrobial resistance crisis right now. There's a lot to say here and I'm not gonna unpack it all, but ob the obvious one first and foremost is that if we are not interpreting these uh, MICs appropriately, then that means we're not treating patients appropriately, which means we probably could be contributing to some undesirable clinical outcomes for patients. Right, And this is becoming more and more true as we see more resistant organisms um, that are really scary and potentially you know, deadly bugs. And we wanna make sure that these patients are being treated appropriately. That being said, there's also all sorts of other things to think about like infection prevention and spread of these organisms. So I think we're learning a lot about the importance of data and understanding the burden of these organisms in our communities. And once we understand what's there, I think we better understand how to prevent and manage spread. Um, so also being able to appropriately identify these patterns of resistance, documenting that, making sure our antibiograms are accurate, 
reporting that back. This all helps with uh, tracking and prevention methods as well. So there's a lot to be said um, outside just the direct clinical impact on the patient. There's a lot to be said for infection prevention and overall public health and tracking our data and understanding what's really going on out there. And we can't do that if our data are not accurate. So making sure we're up to date is really good for lots of reasons. It's overwhelming and feels impossible sometimes, but it really is the best move for both public health and for clinical practice, truly. Um, yes. And then, you know, as you were mentioning, we were talking about the CLSI, which is the Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute. So, you know, I always like to, you know, tell the text, you know, it's definitely, you know, it, it has some great information that it is good for everyone to know, especially, you know, it will help everyone to do their job better. You know, not only has the, the breakpoints, but it also has uh, things like, you know, like which organisms to use for quality control, which ones have intrinsic resistance. That way, you know, when you get a request for a, for a, a, an antibiotic that the organism is intrinsically resistant. So you get familiar with this stuff. I mean, your instruments, they do, you know, like, especially if, if you have all your, let's say your microbiologists on site, or, you know, they enter all the rules and all the breakpoints. And, but sometimes, you know, if you're entering things manually, you know, it is a, it's definitely a great resource for every technologist and um, microbiologist that work in a lab to get familiar with. Absolutely. CLSI, that document is, oh my, it's like the Bible of the micro. I mean, it's, there's times you think you don't need to reference it and you find a little gem, a little nugget of information in there that you're like, oh my gosh, that is so helpful. I, when I was working in the lab, I, I turned to that document more times than I can count. It's wonderful guidance for all sorts of things in your lab. So absolutely get familiar with that sucker. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and definitely, you know, those of us on the bench, you know, you get a, a request for something, let's say on a staff orders, and then, okay, let me go check. And then it says, okay, um, you shouldn't be testing for this and this organism. Um, you can use some um, antibiotics for interpretations of others, you know, like with tetracycline. And so it's definitely, yeah, it's something that we should all be getting familiar with, like I said. And, you know, your lab typically, you know, it has a binder out there. Well, you know, they keep it and you go reference it, but you can also go online and if you type, you know, free CLSIM 100, it points you to a, a website where you can actually see it right from your computer. So that, you know, saves you some time to keep getting up. You know, when you start your, your work day, you know, you can go ahead and search for that and then you have it there. And then if you need to reference something, you're right there on your bench. Absolutely. So we touched on this, but I mean, some of the challenges, you know, in the lab, you know, we talked about Sometimes, you know, uh, where to go, you know, we talked about staffing. I mean, is there anything else that you can talk about as far as challenges the laboratorians have with updating breakpoints? Yeah, I think, I think a point I want to drive home, this is actually a question I've been getting a lot lately. Um, and I think I, I don't, I haven't fully realized that maybe there's folks out there that don't understand the, the change. Um, why this is so urgent now, or maybe why there feels like a bit of panic. And that's these uh, the new cap requirements or that checklist requirement, which I would just like to read to you really quickly. It says, um, effective January uh, 1st, 2024, laboratories must use current breakpoints for interpretation of antimicrobial minimum inhibitory concentration and disdiffusion test results and implement new breakpoints within three years of the date of official publication by FDA 
or other standards development organization used by the laboratory. So the reason this is such a big deal is because that whole thing I talked about in the beginning with CLSI and FDA and manufacturers, there was no requirement, uh, let's say for example, there was really no formal requirement on manufacturers to get these uh, updates cleared and done on their systems immediately. Um, it was really up to them to decide when their you know, resources would allow for them to get this validation work done, submit to the FDA, get these new breakpoints clear. And then labs could choose, you know, if they didn't want to wait that long, they could choose to update to CLSI, you know, if they're keeping up with these regularly and they have the resources to do that. That was sort of a optional thing, but something that was always very highly encouraged. Now what we're seeing with this requirement um, is that everyone's bringing, being brought up to a higher standard. Uh, we all need to, to get up to, to standard here and update our stuff. And so you don't have a choice anymore. You, you need to get updated to the most recent breakpoint, be that a UCAS breakpoint, FDA, or CLSI. Laboratories can use any one of those three, but it's no longer an option. You can't be using some old CLSI or FDA breakpoints and just not get those updated. And so that's why there's this urgency here, just because we all know um, CAP comes in and inspects, and that's a really big deal for clinical laboratories. So this is a really important thing now, um, not only just for clinical care, but just for laboratories to make sure they continue to get the accreditation they need and um, pass their inspections. This is, is something that has to be done pretty much. We got to do it now. So 2024 is uh, very soon. And so that's why there is this sense of urgency. So I think that would add to the challenges for laboratorians. What I'm really finding in my conversations day to day uh, with my fellow lab friends and directors is that um, there's just, like we said, everybody's just stretched really thin. And I think too, this has seemed like this very nebulous concept floating up in the sky. That's like what's happening with FDA and what happens with these breakpoints. It's always seemed, I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but as a, a, a bench microbiologist, I just felt like that was just something that was happening out there. And, you know, my instrument would get the updates it needed. And then, you know, my manager would ask me to validate something if I needed it. And like, but it wasn't something I was super immersed in all the time until um, a little later in my career. And so I think it's just this, um, it's a combination of things. It's education about the process. It's education about, I, I feel like a lot of my colleagues in the lab, um, antimicrobial susceptibility testing and understanding MICs and breakpoints was the hardest concept for people to grasp in micro. Um, so it's not only that it's a challenging concept, but it's understanding the regulations around this stuff, understanding where to start, how do you go about it, who, who can you ask for help, and then finding the staffing to do that, <laughs> understanding if there's other resources for you if you don't have the staffing, um, just all those things I think are just really challenging for labs right now, in addition to all the other testing that has to go on and, and the impact of COVID. It's just a really big challenge. Yes, you know, and something you mentioned, it just, I do as, you know, as me, you know, as, a, as a person that works on the bench, yeah, a lot of times, you know, maybe some of us might not be too familiar with, with you know, what's going on, like, you know, like you mentioned, you know, maybe our manager says, you know, we're going to start using this, uh, this drug, you know, these are the requirements or these are the criteria for calling an organism an MDRO. 
So this is some information that some of, some of us might not be too familiar with, but like I like to keep stressing in this podcast, this is information that we should know, even if we are not the microbiologist PhD or the MD. Uh, it's good information to be familiar with. You know, it's just a lot of times, you know, this is a, you know, we use computer systems and sometimes, you know, maybe some of those rules from the LIS, you know, they might translate well from, let's say, automated systems or maybe your interface is not working that day and you're entering stuff manually. So a lot of mistakes can happen. And then it just, and it just, you know, it makes us better on our job. You know, some of these tools we can have and there might not be a need to, let's say that text your supervisor on a Saturday morning because you're trying to see whether you should be doing testing on a specific drug or not. So you have the resources out there. You know, it's just, we have to know you know, where to look for them and what they are. Absolutely. I, I think anyone that knows me well knows that I um, feel very strongly that clinical laboratory scientists are highly intelligent individuals who are fully capable of grasping this information and utilizing it every day in their job. Um, and that it shouldn't only be up to, we call it D degrees. So PhDs and MDs. I mean, I think clinical laboratory scientists, bench techs have an amazing um, role to play in all of this. And I, I, it can seem overwhelming, but I think this is, like you said, it's very important information to understand. And given that a lot of texts might get thrown into these validations moving forward because they have to happen quickly, um, it's really great to get up to speed on this information. And so I'm always, you know, I'm to anyone that's, I'm always taking blog ideas. <laughs> if anyone thinks to write about, so if there's really pertinent questions out there, people would like an explainer article on, I would love to do that. I always take suggestions. So, um, and just for the audience out there, I mean, most of us, you know, laboratories are familiar with, with CAP, but, you know, if you're a student, it's, you know, it's the College of uh, American Pathologists. And they're an, an agency that, you know, that credits and inspects the clinical laboratories. You know, those of us here in the lab, we've always, when it comes that time for that inspection, right? You know, we're always all about checking those expiration dates, which you always be doing. And, um, you know, also making sure you're taking out the little, you know, cheat sheets, document, all the documents that we post that are, if they're not a controlled document. Um, just for the audience again, can you repeat what was, when does this new requirement go into effect? Um, so it's actually, everything is live right now. Um... But this inspection, this particular checklist item is effective January 1st, 2024. So um, I have, you know, and this is why I say just make sure you document too, just because during inspection time, like you're saying, there's a lot of documentation that gets reviewed. And so I think if laboratories are able to explain, like I said too, um, things differ by laboratory. So if a, a laboratory kind of does a, a risk or, or needs assessment on their own lab based on the organisms they see, the antibiotics that are used at their institution, the size, these are things all come into account and um, into account and drive what this validation or verification looks like. As long as the laboratory is documenting, and of course I'm not speaking for CAP, I, you know, I don't, I'm not doing your inspection, so I don't want to lead anyone astray here, but I think if you're able to explain how you identified what your breakpoints are, how you address the updates, um, and how you're ensuring that you're using the most up-to-date information in written form, and there's some templates online to help with that, that that's going to be something that labs are going to need to show to inspectors at some point. So um, 
one of the things, you know, if, if anyone listens to this podcast, you know, I always like to talk about that one of the, the challenges that I always, you know, encounter as I progress in my career is always sometimes, you know, the lack of information. There might be a lot out there, but put it in a place where it's more accessible. Um, so really, thank you for putting this out there. You know, it's just, it's always nice to see, you know, people in this community when they're trying to, you know, share information like that, you know, they use their knowledge, you know, they they use their position to, you know, make this profession better. So, you know, really thank you. I just, I think this is, you know, something that will be very helpful, especially if you're, let's say, a supervisor out there that might not have a microbiologist on site and then, you know, thinking maybe you're already checking, you might not have the breakpoints and you were already thinking, oh my goodness, where do I start? So, I mean, this will be a good place. You know, you have uh, items outlined here. So, I just, you know, I really want to thank you for doing this. I think it's great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. I just hope that it's helpful. I really just hope it's helpful for everyone. And um, yeah, and I just want to say a quick thanks to every clinical laboratory scientist working out there um, that's been working so hard the last few years. And then every, you know, laboratory director, manager, supervisor, PharmD and infectious disease clinician, uh, be that a NPPA. Um, all you folks, I just, you know, I know that everything's been really tough and this probably feels like another barrier. So just know you're appreciated. Yes, I definitely echo that sentiment. Thank you, everyone. Um, so Dr. Prinzi, is there anything else that you might want to add about this? Uh, just best of luck <laughs> and reach out for help when you, when you need it and access all the resources that you can. And I wish you all the best, everyone. <laughs> definitely. Well, I want to thank you for, you know, for taking the time to uh, coming on the podcast to talk about this. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed listening to this interview. I enjoyed sharing it with you. As always, continue bringing that passion to what you do. That's so important. Stay educated. Continue challenging yourselves to learn more about what you do, to become better at your profession. And those of you that are in a position to share your knowledge, go ahead and do so. You know, it is great to share and at the end, we'll benefit from learning more. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time, bye.